Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, we'll start this one with just a quick ask for feedback. Uh, it seems that feedback on the podcast seem to come in bunches. I don't know why. Suddenly we'll get a whole bunch, and then we'll get none at all for a while. And we're in a bit of the none at all uh, phase. So if you have any feedback on the podcast, uh, send it to us. Let us know. Do you like the guests? Do you like what we're talking about? Um, do you hate my voice? Do you hate the uh, intro music? Or do you like those things? Uh, we appreciate any uh, feedback whatsoever, and so please uh, send it in. Now, uh, if you're an avid listener to the podcast, and you should be, uh, then you'll recall that last summer we had on author Rob Reed to talk about his then new science fiction novel, After On, and uh, we also talked about some of the experiments that he was running and publishing and promoting it. And one of the things that Rob did was to create, uh, well, a podcast. Uh, the book, if you don't recall, digs pretty deep on a variety of different complex topics. And in researching the book, Rob ended up spending lots of time talking to a bunch of different subject matter experts on a variety of different topics in different fields. So the initial idea for his podcast was that he'd do an episode talking to each of those experts and it would act as a companion to the book. Indeed, at the end of each interview, Rob and uh, his friend Tom Merritt would then connect the interview to what's in the actual book. However, after completing the set of interviews that matched up with the book, he decided to keep going and just kept on interviewing smart, accomplished, and sometimes controversial deep thinkers. Now, uh, I know that another podcast should probably be seen as competition to this one <laughs> that you're listening to, especially since finding time to listen to podcasts can be tricky. So I shouldn't be telling you about Rob's podcast, and I probably should hate him for building a competitor that's really good. Uh, but that's not really how I'm wired. And also, as I noted, his podcast is really, really good. So so I thought it might be nice uh, for those of you who don't already listen to it uh, to know about it. Uh, and so we have Rob on today. Um, and I wanted to just mention, if, if you haven't heard his podcast um, and, and, and decide to go back and explore some of my favorite episodes so far uh, have included the one that he had talking to Stephen Webb about Fermi's paradox and why we haven't met intelligent alien life yet. Uh, and an episode that he did with Mary Lou Jepsen, who claims to have built a technology that is orders of magnitude better, cheaper, and smaller than MRI, such that it completely changes what the technology can do, perhaps even to the point of enabling telepathy. Uh, and then two other recent ones that really got me thinking were uh, David Eagleman discussing creating new senses for humans, and then the 
recent episode with Don Hoffman on why we're all wrong about <laughs> what is real and what isn't. Uh, these are all pretty mind-bending, and I mean that in a good way. Even if you don't necessarily agree with what they're saying, it really, really makes you think. So anyways, I wanted to have Rob on again to talk about the podcast and to introduce our listeners to its existence, if they don't know about it, uh, as I think that many of you would like it, just so long as you still leave time to listen to this podcast also. So <laughs> Rob, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so kindly, and thank you very, very kindly for the kind words and for giving a platform to a quote-unquote competitor. <laughs> yeah, as well. I guess yeah. we all, like everybody in media, competes with everybody else because there's a finite number of hours of human attention out there. Yeah, yeah. And some, some people, I've noticed some people take it really seriously, and it's, it's funny to me how... how um, you know, sometimes I, I, you know, there's a lot of like reporters and podcasters and, and whatever who I know and I get along with and, and we have, you know, very friendly relationships with, but like there are a few out there who, who, who really seem to dig in on the, like the, the competition angle. Yeah, and, it's odd. Yeah. It's odd. I mean, I think that you, we're in this field generally, people who, you know, try to spread knowledge and spread information and spread news and tell stories, you know, there, there is a tiny sliver of people in this broader sphere who make ungodly sums, right? but I don't think any rational person enters this domain, you know, hoping for anything much more than to eke out a living and do something that's really, really fulfilling. And on that level, you know, it's not like, you know, one person's success is really literally taking money out of another person's (laughs) pocket. It's not like trading on a trading floor on wall street. We're all part of the same project. Um, now I get it. If people are in the political sphere, um, which you edge into and I, I generally avoid and you're, you're disagreeing with people on matters of principle. That's a different thing, but to feel, you know, capital C competitive, (laughs) you know, about, you know, he diffuses more ideas than I do. And I hate him (laughs) for that. You know, Oh, come on. You know, we're, we're so blessed. Uh, to, for whatever reason, be in a position to participate in this dialogue that, you know, I think it's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And, and you know, especially when, you know, I, I can understand people getting upset when it's like low quality stuff that ends up getting attention, but... but yeah, that pisses know. me off. Okay, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, good, high quality, really, really relevant stuff, I think is is, is really great and it's worth celebrating. So, you know, I'm... Uh, yes. So, for example, your stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and and it, it is really good. But but let me... Let me um, let me see. Can I get you to 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 confess and admit that that this was never just about promoting the book, and that you always intended it to be an ongoing podcast, or or did that really happen organically? That really did happen organically, and it, I never really considered becoming a podcaster until the idea of doing this in conjunction with the book came up. It was an idea that felt extremely natural as soon as I had it. Mm -hmm. Um, But even though I've been an avid podcast listener for over 10 years, it literally never once crossed my mind, hey, I should do that, Um, (laughs) until I was in, you know, kind of the late stages of of the book coming out. And what happened was um, I, I, I give full credit and blame, actually, to Tom Merritt, uh, who runs the the very popular daily, you know, video slash podcast plus plus slash show, whatever you want to call it, Daily Tech News Show. Tom was at uh, CNET Forever, and then he was on Leo Laporte's mm-hmm. uh, various shows for a very long period of time. He was at Tech TV. He has been basically telling the world about tech over you know tech savvy mediums uh, for quite some time, pretty much his whole career. And he was we were he, he read an early version of the book, and he actually. Uh, read a small part of it on the audiobook, 
And he kind of said, hey, you know, would it, wouldn't it be fun? Would you, would you mind if I kind of generated something like show notes for the book? Because the novel, after on, came out in August. And although it's science fiction, it's set maybe nine seconds into the future. <laughs> and there's all kinds of, you know, very, very deliberate intersections with what's happening in our, in our day-to-day lives and in our world. And so he said he'd, he'd enjoy doing something kind of like show notes mm-hmm. that tie the novel to, you know, to the world that we live in and we went started going back and forth on that and, and that very rapidly blew up into this idea of of a podcast and he as you probably remember basically co-hosted the first eight episodes with me right which were very very tied to the book so episodes you know one through eight were as you mentioned all um really expanding on themes that are deeply present in the novel synthetic biology is a big part of the story consciousness neuroscience uh lone wolf terrorism a bunch of things. And uh, I mainly concentrated in the podcast episodes on things that I needed to educate myself about before I wrote the novel. I knew a lot about technology and how it works and how the Silicon Valley ecosystem works and venture capitalists and entrepreneurs because I'd lived that life for many, many years. So that I didn't need to research, but I didn't know a whole lot about neuroscience. Um, I definitely knew very, very little about synthetic biology. So I did research certain of my interviewees for the podcast were people that I interviewed as I was getting ready for the book. Mm -hmm. And realizing that I couldn't convey all of the exciting things that I'd learned about certain domains within the confines of the novel without completely hijacking my storyline, this was kind of like, oh, this would be fun. This would be like more more than show notes. It would be like DVD extras. Tom's being incredibly generous by, you know, offering to teach me a lot of this stuff. And so then I started doing it, and it really was with the ex- initial expectation of I'll do these eight episodes. It'll be a great learning experience, and I'll move on. I was prob- it was pretty early in the process that I started realizing, damn, this is too much fun to put down. <laughs> but I think I was probably through four episodes produced, not yet released, when I realized, you know, i got to at least you know, give this a year because it's a blast. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And then... I mean, there's a part of it that feels like to me, and and I know that that like you've well, you know, one one of one of your interviews was with uh, Chris Anderson, who runs TED now, yeah. Um, and it does feel like a lot of the interviews are sort of like taking TED talks and then going deep with the people who give the TED talks. <laughs> is that is that an accurate assessment? It, it it's more. Um, uh... There's two things. There's a little bit of happenstance, and then there's also the fact that I've been a you know a TED attendee and also a TED speaker mm-hmm. uh, myself for many many years, and so there's it's just sort of the milieu that I swim in. A high percentage of the people that have um, uh, have been on the podcast have given TED talks from the main stage, but it has nobody's been selected deliberately because of that. And actually, you mentioned the Stephen Webb episode, um, mm-hmm. the Fermi's Paradox episode. He spoke at TED this year in Vancouver just a few weeks ago as a direct result of appearing on my podcast. Oh, wow. So Chris Anderson heard that episode, and as you know, that's it is a at least I found it to be because I was doing the listening rather than most of the talking, (laughs) absolutely riveting review of what Fermi's paradox could possibly mean about life in the universe and and our own future. It was, it was very unhurried. We really, really, you know, navigated the, the, the topic. It's almost two hours long. 
And I got an email from Chris just a day or two after saying, that was fabulous. I, I want him to speak at TED. Can you put huh. me in touch? I'm like, I have a feeling he'll say yes to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, and, and so there, there are a number, I'd say probably roughly half or maybe slightly more than half of my interviewees have spoken at TED main stage. And I'm sure a higher percentage, there's 10 TEDx's a day now throughout the yeah. world. An even higher percentage have spoken at TED. Um, but so there is that cross pollination, but it is much more in depth because my typical episode is probably 75 to 90 minutes long yeah. and that's distilled down from a longer conversation. I do edit for, for clarity and parsimony. And then the other thing that I do with my interviewees, there's two things that I do that are probably a little unusual. One, I probably average 15 to 20 hours of preparation before the interview, right. uh, making myself as smart as I possibly can about the domain because it's often entirely new to me. And also really going deep into the work that is out there on the web and in the world by my interviewees. So I have a very, very good sense of where their expertise is, where their really, truly sparkling novel ideas are, um, what they're especially good at nailing. And I put together, in collaboration with my interviewee, I try to sketch out like, you know, we'll have a conversation and we'll, sw we'll swap a few emails before the interview. And I'll basically say, this is how I think the interview should flow. So we can start with the foundational concepts and build on them and, you know, really give the listener a comprehensive sense for your work and your domain so that the information density, I hope and I aspire, and my guests hope and aspire, is actually closer to a TED Talk than a lot of interviews mm -hmm. um, because it is there is a deliberate crafting to it. So in some weird ways, it's almost more like a documentary than a traditional interview because we really do have a knowledge transfer agenda. And um, so it's, I guess it's important to confess and also to note, I think this is a feature, not a bug, but people should realize in doing this, I don't consider it an act of journalism. I, I think of the podcast and my, me as an interviewer more as being hopefully a conduit to, to maximize the flow of information, point of view, and personal story from the guest to the listener. And the deeper goal, I guess, is that somebody listening to it you know, um, I'll give an example. I interviewed uh, Coinbase's co-founder, Fred Ursum, uh, back in December. And, you know, we, you know, I basically said, look, I'd like for this to certainly tell the story of you and Coinbase. But what I'd really like is for my listeners to come away with a pretty vivid and comprehensive understanding for the, for the crypto um, ecosystem. And the goal I articulated with him, which is something I've, I've kept just in our, in our conversations I articulated with him, is like, let's try to take our listeners from a glancing familiarity to a top percentile understanding of this domain over the course of the 90 or 120 minutes or whatever it is that they listen. Um, so there's that, that level of depth, I think, is, is you know, TED Talk's got to be 18 minutes, has the advantage right. of having visuals. You know, that's something we can't communicate with in an interview, but we have the advantage of being, you know, several times longer. Right. Um, so there is something that is, there's, there's multiple touch points with TED. Yeah, no, no, I thought it was interesting. So, um, and then, you know, for, for other guests, where, where are you finding them? Because, I mean, each one, you know, there, there hasn't been, you haven't, like, had a, a, a bad one yet. <laughs> you know, each of the guests are really, really interesting and, and in a very diverse field. And they're obviously all sort of experts in, in the field that they're in. So, so how are you sourcing guests? 
Gosh, um, each one is different. I'm I'm doing now, uh, as you know, uh, two episodes a month. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, having an omnivorous mind. Um, like your own, like I mean, you and I probably both spend dozens, dozens, and dozens <laughs> of hours diving down various rabbit holes online yeah. as you know we're doing our jobs to you know find great information to bring to people and also following our own curiosity. And what I've done now is my antenna is just that much higher for like, whoa, that was a really interesting <laughs> quote or that was a really interesting idea. Who said that? Like, right. I've tuned that up by a factor of 10x mm. in my normal reading. And as a result of that, as I drift around, um, I often like, ooh, I want to magnify that person. And of course, the internet's such a fabulous and almost instantaneous resource to very, very rapidly get a sense of like, is this somebody who'd be a fabulous interviewee? Right. And, you know, the answer is, you know, a majority of times no, but how fascinating I learned about this person. But when I find that somebody who seems to have a really interesting, coherent, really coherent body of, of work behind them uh, that is, um, you know, extensive and contrarian and also is within a field that I think we all should know a little bit more about – you know, then I get really, really interested. And then also I, I, there's, you know, I network in other places. There's a, a fantastic and extremely well-regarded and well-known agent here, literary agent in New York City named John Brockman, who has gone to TED countless times himself. But he's, you know, he goes way, way back in the intellectual fra- fabric of the tech industry and uh, also in the science world. And, you know, he goes back to the 60s, I think, with people like Stuart Brand and Kevin Kelly. Mm. And, you know, I'll talk to him about what great books are coming out. Cause he, he reps almost exclusively represents scientists. And so he'll tell me about some great books that are coming up. And that'll get, you know, my, my thoughts churning. Um, and, uh, you know, just talking to other folks, like I've, I've gotten to know Sam Harris a little bit through this work. He was a guest on my, on my show. Um, my wife and I have become friendly with him and his wife, Annika. Annika is, you know, another person who has enormous surface area in terms of her intellectual interests. And so just talking with fellow podcasters and people in this general field, um, everybody comes to me through a different route and I'm usually... I don't know, three or four episodes ahead of the game in terms of who I know I'm going to have next. Um, and, you know, when I look out, you know, beyond July or August, I have no idea. But um, <laughs> yeah, some other idea is going to come along. There's, there's yeah. no question. Yeah, there's, 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 there's no lack of, of smart, interesting people out there. You, yeah, you yeah. Could, you could podcast twice a month, you know, until... For years. Yes. Like, if I look at my <laughs> wish list, um, yeah. it, it would probably, it would take me at least 12 months to work through the people that I would be delighted to just sign up right now. And I've got to restrain myself in putting out invitations because most people do say yes. Right. And, you know, I don't want to book somebody and then say, okay, great. It'll be in eight months. You know? <laughs> right. No, right. I have to admit, I think I've done that with this podcast. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, so um, I mean, out, out of, uh, 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 well, I'm not going to ask you to pick your favorite, but uh, but I'm going to say, out of all the conversations you've had, which one do you think was the most surprising to you? Wow, the most surprising. Um, it, by the time I had the conversation, it was less surprising because I'd read all of his work and we had talked mm-hmm. on the phone and and all the stuff that I that I described to you. But the ideas that to me are most um, you know, our ideas that I never suspected existed until a few months ago <laughs> was one of the podcasts you mentioned, which is Don Hoffman. It's, it's right. as we sit here and record this, 
it's the current episode. I know that there might be another, it might be a week or two before this goes up. So yep. as we sit here, it's the current episode. Uh, Don is what's called a quantitative psychologist. He's been at UC Irvine since the 80s doing very, very unusual work. And he questions, as you know, uh, the foundation of reality. And he has an <laughs> argument which is very grounded in a Darwinian perspective and a very, you know, he puts natural selection um, at the absolute epicenter of what drives our, the, you know, the creation of our senses and our perception of reality. And to give the extreme cliff notes on this, and they're extreme enough that they'll seem easy to dismiss, but he's thought this through very, very rigorously, and it is by no means easy to dismiss. Um, his argument is that if you have critters, you know, back, you know, in the evolutionary past, and one of those critters views reality through a very distorted lens that happens to increase its fitness, its, its likelihood to survive, its likelihood uh, you know, to find food, it's likelihood to avoid predation and so forth. That thing is going to outlast and outsurvive uh, a fellow critter that is a near neighbor genetically that sees reality more as it is. And so reality distortion will be selected for provided that it provides increasing fitness over the generations. And he's, he's a very rigorous mathematical modeler, and he has gotten some grant money that has allowed him to hire extravagantly serious mathematicians and they've modeled through you know countless evolutionary scenarios providing math that they that they believe quite firmly supports this and um, it is a fascinating tale and the the reason I decided to interview him is whether or not Don is right or wrong and Don doesn't know and I don't know and I you know I'm certainly not a hundred percent convinced that he is Whatever fundamentally ends up explaining, truly explaining reality, will at minimum be at least as weird as anything he's talking about. <laughs> and look at the competition. I mean, you look at string theory, um, right. you look at some of the quantum mechanical realities that all of our modern, modern marvels run upon, there are some absolute imponderables out there. And many of them happen to slot very, very nicely into Don's worldview. Um, and that's not accidental. He started from some of the imponderables and started rethinking what reality is like. And so I think it's a fascinating and powerful and very, very useful exercise to grapple with his ideas. And, um, you know, we, we laid them out, I believe, in a way that would make them very, very accessible to any listener uh, who's an ambitious listener. I mean, all of my episodes, you've got to be an ambitious listener. And that was stuff that really blew me away. Um, as did the Mary Lou Jepsen, the other one, another one you mentioned, Mary yeah. Lou Jepsen, what she's doing, yeah. uh, if it works, will be completely transformative, yeah. not only to medical Incredible, imaging, yeah. but probably, you know, brain-machine interfaces as well. And I knew... I've known her for a few years, and I knew quite a bit about what she was doing before she came public with it, but nowhere near on the depth of detail or the levels of ramification that we got into in our talk. Yeah, I, I have to admit. So it, it was probably, I don't know, maybe a couple weeks. It may have only been like two weeks before that episode dropped. I actually ended up at a at a dinner um, with a bunch of people, but she actually ended up sitting across the table from me. Oh, cool. Um, and and so I I talked to her and she started to explain you know you have the sort of you know usual small talk what what do you do and she's talking about like you know 
building MRI systems into you know the ski cap that you that you wear every day that will like image everything and then be able to to take your thoughts out of your brain and I was like who is this person what uh, yeah <laughs> was, um, but but you know yeah I mean she's it's 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 no joke I mean she's 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 uh, very serious about it and and, and they appear to be doing very very interesting work that, that she's could, the former could, CTO of Oculus she right. was very senior in the engineering ranks at both Google and Facebook uh, she co-founded one lap per child with Nicholas Negroponte she's a serious person yeah. and um, in her case we, it, it often turns out that there is this very interesting intersection of disciplines that somebody has that that takes them into a, a, a way of viewing things that other folks wouldn't have. And she's a classic example. So in her case, um, she spent the last probably 15 years of her career getting really good at shipping consumer electronic products that, that pushed the, the edge of the boundary, if not necessarily of physics, then at least of what the consumer electronics energy, this trillion dollar infrastructure in Asia right. was able to produce in that particular year. And this goes from Oculus all the way back to one laptop per child. So you got very, very good at shipping product and understanding hardware and that kind of thing. So that's an important mentality, mindset. Now, she also has this deep background that very few people could match in holography. And holography was the one of the coolest things in tech in the 80s because, holy cow, things popping up in 3D. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, along comes the web and we can make a lot more money with TCP IP. And it, it became less of a sexy thing. You know, it's, it's literally sexy, glittery 3D awesomeness. Right. Um, and, but, but she got very deep into it in, you know, even in the earlier mid-80s when she was an undergrad. And spent many years there and really understands the, the math of holography on a level that very, very few people who know anything about shipping consumer electronic products could possibly match. They're just different domains. And then the third thing, which is fundamental, is that she had a terrible brain tumor when she was an undergrad that would, would almost went undiscovered and almost killed her. But then a professor stumped up for her to get an MRI back when MRIs were rare and expensive, and they found mm -hmm. it, and they took it out, and, and she's been essentially fine ever since, although she does have to take a, you know, a lot of medications. that She's talked about this in a TED Talk. I won't go into the details because they're out there. But she has to take a lot of medication to keep her act together, but you know, decades have gone by, and she's fine. Right. But as a result of that, she has learned like a ton, both as a patient and as a later on a fascinated scientist about medical imaging, these three things came together for these very contrarian ideas about how you could do medical in, in, imaging using near-infrared light, using holographic, uh, hologrammatic transformations that have been around, much of this has been known since the 60s. And, you know, will it work? Will it not? Um, who knows? But she's a very serious person with very yeah. significant credentials and very, very, very smart backers. And it's going to be a fascinating thing to see. And if it does deliver on its maximum promise to really get into the brain and what's going on in there, <laughs> the, the brain-machine interface ramifications are flat-out scary. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's... it's you know but it it is something that is pretty amazing and it's it's sort of fascinating to see and i think you know um i think that's a it's a really good point just the fact that 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 point about the intersection of different things and i think you even see that with some some of your other guests too but like you know and, and it's something that that you know I, it would be nice if more people even recognize that's one of the things that i've talked about a lot too where you know this idea of you know one of the reasons why i'm so into 
you know, more open access to, to knowledge and, and information is this idea that, you know, that's how the big ideas and the big breakthroughs come, you know, when you have this, this cross-pollination where somebody who is an expert in one field learns about a different subject that they didn't necessarily know, but they can take that perspective that they had and apply it to this new area, then, then interesting things happen. In some cases, it's, you know, a single person touching on all these different areas and seeing it. But, you know, in a lot of cases, it's where you bring together two or three people from, from the different backgrounds and different perspectives, and, and you plug them together, and you, you begin to get these sort of, you know, brilliant breakthroughs that wouldn't, wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And it's not a bad strategy um, in, a, in a way for career management as well. Sure. I mean, when I was an undergrad, we had a friend who was uh, an Olympic swimmer. He was one of the best people in the world. In fact, for a period of time, although it didn't unfortunately include an Olympic year, he was the best person in the world. And I think it was 100-meter breaststroke. Hmm. Um, and he's a New Zealander. His name's Anthony Moss. And um, I think he won a bronze of the Olympics, but then he won a gold in the world competition, you know, that was off-cycle Olympics, w- whatever, whatever it was. Um, the important thing was he was the best person in the world at a thing. Mm-hmm. And I saw up front how hard that is because yeah. whatever you pick, you know, whether it's 100-meter breaststroke or, you know, some, you know, some field of technology or science or being a lawyer or whatever it is, to be the best in the world, there is going to be intense competition it's going to take monomaniacal focus many years and an enormous amount of talent and a certain amount of luck, et cetera, to suddenly be a truly, you know, rare, even unique asset in the talent pool of the world. Now, Anthony got to that point, and he's, I believe, he remains a very, very well-known figure in New Zealand to this day, which is fantastic. But it's really hard to become a, a rare, even no. unique ac- asset to the global talent pool doing one thing extravagantly well. Um, because I've got a little bit of a nomadic brain and a nomadic set of interests, <laughs> that's generally not a great thing from a career standpoint. But one of the things that led me to was when I was coming out of business school um, in 1994, I had a class of 850 people in my business school class. Literally eight of us went into high tech. And of the eight of us, I was the least qualified person to go into high tech because <laughs> I had studied Middle Eastern history and Arabic in college, right? Right. And I'm coming out with an MBA, which is a very generalist degree. And I'd worked in management consulting in between college and business school, which is highly genera- generalist. And it was the weirdest thing on earth for an MBA. I, I went to Harvard Business School, for particularly from that school. It's not known for risk-taking or adventurous <laughs> you know, mentality amongst its graduates. Everybody dutifully trooped off to Wall Street in management consulting and brand management and stuff like that. Um, but I had this gotten bit by the tech bug. It came out to Silicon Valley in 94 and through you know, a series of other events, ended up becoming an internet person very early. Um, I ended up becoming, you know, the uh, Silicon Graphics got wise to the internet much earlier than most companies. That's where I landed. That was the big company, very big at the time, 6,000 people that was large enough to take, you know, a, you know, a relatively harmless MBA and give them a job. So then all of a sudden was that weird intersection. Suddenly I was an MBA from a, you know, a good school, but I was one of tens of thousands of of recent-ish MBAs from good schools, right? So that's a good pool. I was somewhere in this pool of 10,000-ish people. But I was also an internet person. And that was also a reasonably big pool, but a much smaller pool in 1994. But that was a pool. And I was probably uh, pretty lousy at being an elite school MBA because I only had a few (laughs) months of, of, of work experience, right? Right. And I was certainly lousy at being an internet person because I couldn't tell a bit from a Biden. I couldn't code. But by being at that very unusual intersection, 
that turned out to be a, an important intersection because the internet was suddenly going to collide with the business world in a very, very big way. And that, that turned out to make me a fairly scarce asset for a few years. And, you know, you can't engineer that stuff. You have to follow your fascination and your heart and your interests. Um, but when you do end up having unusual intersections in your own skill set, um, that can be a much more rapid route to being a rare asset in the world than being one of the top two or three or five people in a particular thing. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's actually a really good point. That's an interesting way to look at it. Um, so one other thing I wanted to, to, to talk about, cause it's, I mean, well, I think it's interesting to both of us, but you, you've now been sort of trying to figure out if there's a, a business model for your podcast. Yep. Um, you know, which is something that, that for the most part we've ignored. <laughs> oh, I, I have until just, uh, I think it was the Mary Lou Jepsen episode. Right. That I started trying to get some, see if I could do this. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and, and you've at least initially sort of taken the same route that we have, which is we each have a, a Patreon account, um, and, and set that up. And, and so, so how, how's that going? What are you, what are you thinking of doing? Well, what I've, I've committed to myself and to my listeners um, that I will keep this thing going at least until the end of June. And I made that commitment mm -hmm. back in February when it was a bigger deal to say that than it is in May, right? <laughs> it's like, right. ooh, that's, that's, you're thinking, you're thinking long-term, Mr. Reed. Um, and I basically you know, told folks I need an audience. I think I need an audience of close to 50,000 people per episode. Uh, because I only do two episodes a month, right? You right. Know, and it's uh, it, it does take an enormous amount of work to do these. Probably put thirty. Now probably put closer to forty hours in each episode between the upfront work that I mentioned and, and a lot of post production and so forth. So I probably need about fifty thousand listeners per episode in order to put an interesting advertising model around it, and that can be mitigated, um, you know, to some degree by Patreon. I think I calculated with all my expenses. If I just did Patreon, um, uh, I'd need to get up to about 4500 bucks a month. I have a lot of travel expenses because I do almost all of my interviews in person, and I, I go to my interviewees. I think at $4,500 a month, um, I would bring myself to New York City minimum wage um, <laughs> and, and you know, some blend of you know, advertising revenue and, and, and Patreon you know, could get me to the point at least where my expenses are covered and maybe I can you know, continue along for another several months and, again, see how it grows. Um, so the podcast has been growing. I don't think it's going to get to 50000 by the end of June. Uh, the Patreon has been growing. I don't think it's going to get to $4,500 by the end of June. The question is, will those two things together uh, be promising enough for me to say, all right, let's do this another six months? <laughs> and I don't know. I've got a couple tricks up my sleeve um, <laughs> for the next couple of months that okay. I think um, you know, may hopefully significantly expand the audience. Um, and it is growing. I mean, that's the thing that's really encouraging. Like every week is bigger than the week before. And now new listeners who come to the, to the show have, you know, over, you know, 25, 26, 27 episodes to choose from as opposed to 10, 15 or 20. Right. Right. And there is, there is enormous shelf life with these episodes. And so, you know, there, there is a lot of binge listening that happens when keep, people come on board and the more episodes I have, the more people are listening. So um, there, there are promising trend lines. Um, but at this moment, if I had to make my rent exclusively from the podcast, I'd be evicted. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, what I'd really like to do is get it to the point 
where I can hire significant help because I would love to do an episode a week. Like that would be far right. beyond the numbers that I just put in front of you. So like maybe a two or three year goal would be if the audience got really significant and there was a real ad model around it uh, or a significant Patreon base, um, I could see myself um, hiring myself into a situation where I could do an episode a week. And I did that for, at the very beginning for the first few months. I was doing one a week and almost killed myself uh, <laughs> just from exhaustion, not from suicidal yeah. ideation, but just from <laughs> this, the sheer volume of work. And so I, I paired back to twice a month, but that would be the real fabulous thing is to get to the point where I could do something this in-depth and this carefully researched with people of this quality and still do it once a week. I'd love that. Yeah, yeah, no, that that would be a, that would be pretty amazing. That would be cool. Um, well, uh, that, those were the things that I, I think I, I definitely wanted to talk to you about. Um, trying to think. Oh, one other question actually about out of all of these, which you know, I mean, you talked about sort of twenty hours of research. Were, were there were there any of them that took a lot more than that, or was there one that just you had a just couldn't couldn't fully grasp until you you spent more time which, which one was most difficult to research maybe well probably i'll say george church uh um, yeah george church is arguably uh the world's leading bioengineer right now so he has a very very wildly productive lab at harvard that he runs and that's his that's his gig mm-hmm. um but you know he was one of the the founding lights of the human genome project although he was very young at that point uh, he is a, co- a co-inventor of CRISPR, mm-hmm. and he's the co-founder of over 20 companies, yeah. uh, most of which are people who are coming through his lab, probably the two most selective labs, I would imagine, for postgraduate work in synthetic biology are his lab and Drew Endy's lab at Stanford. Um, so, you know, he incredibly talented postdocs and, 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 um, and doctoral students come through, and some of them go on and found companies, and he's been heavily involved in that process. And so George is probably... You know, as as prominent of a thinker uh, when it comes to synthetic biology as, it ex- as exists, and I taught myself a great deal about genomics in researching the novel, and then I taught myself a great deal in preparing for two interviews that I did prior to George, one with a, a brilliant guy named Andrew Hessel, uh, who at the time was a you know kind of a very senior fellow at Autodesk. Uh, They're doing stuff with genomes let's just leave it at that mm-hmm. and he was there and now he's an entrepreneur and then a guy named robert green who's a genomicist at harvard uh or at the broad institute it's there's all these associations that are around harvard <laughs> but um so those two interviews and the huge amount of research i did for those interviews expanded my knowledge to the point that i was ready to say okay now i'm ready to interview george church because i i i, I feel like i've taken you know, a, at least a couple undergraduate courses worth of genomics between the research I did for my book and for Andrew and for Robert and other, you know, it's an article of fascination for me. And then I did a whole pile of work for the George Church interview because I was like, right. I can't believe I'm going to sit down with George for two hours. <laughs> I'm going to make this crazy efficient. And uh, so all in, that was that was kind of a pinnacle for me. And, um, you know, I, I hope to do similar stuff in other fields. I'm very, very interested in astrophysics. Mm. And I have a couple astrophysics, you know, uh, related interviews that are coming up that are, they won't build necessarily to a George Church-like figure, but I'm going to probably do three or four things on, you know, on dark matter, on dark energy. Uh, I've already done the Fermi's Paradox uh, episode on exoplanets. 
on things like that that I think will will develop into a pretty robust domain of knowledge, both for me and for my listeners. Yeah, yeah, no, the, the George Church one was also that was an excellent one, and I, I kind of enjoyed how you know there were all these different amazing breakthroughs that he was talking about it's and, wild and yeah and, we you know yeah. everyone it's like well that's about five years away <laughs> you know? and he caught himself he's like i i'm sorry to be saying five years again rob but um <laughs> you know this is you know life science and and particularly genomics and synthetic biology above all dna synthesis has been going down a curve that is far steeper than the moore's law curve yeah for decades and when you have built your entire career going down the Moore's Law Curve, you can say crazy things about what might be possible in 10 years, and you're right a lot, right? And right. eventually, you know, your rake curves a while, and people think you're crazy. <laughs> but damn it, he's right again. And George has been going down a much steeper curve since yeah. the earliest days of his career. So when he talks about, you know, xenotransplantation, which is getting uh, safe organs out of, uh, out of pigs— Right. into humans and solving the organ shortage crisis, which is a horrible, horrible health crisis for, for innumerable people. And he says, yeah, we're finally, we, we've, been, we've been trying to do this for decades. We're finally about five years off. When he says that, um, based on all of his experience and his you know, deep, deep insights into what some of the, one of the most important xenotransplantation companies is doing, that's a pretty serious prediction. Yeah. And he said that about four or five things, you're right, yeah. that are all yeah. freaking electrifying. And guess what? Even if he's off by 300% and it's 15 years, um, we're soon going to live in a very, very different and I believe much improved world for synthetic biology. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was going to say, I mean, um, uh, as as you know, and we've talked about on, on the site, we're doing this... Uh, this uh, you know, future scenarios around the future of work called working futures. Yep. Um, and as part of the scenario process, we had, you know, we were looking at all these different trends and, and that podcast, the, the, the church podcast was really useful for me in thinking about like potential trends having to do with genetic engineering and synthetic biology and all that kind of stuff. And it actually, um, you know, became a part of how we were looking at some of those scenarios just from, from him saying these things really? are possible in five years. Yeah. Oh, that's so. great. I'm, del I'm delighted to hear that. And that, <laughs> that, as you know, is the whole point of the podcast. I mean, if somebody with your sophistication can listen to that episode and, and you know, hope that it sounds like you did, find something that's structured and accessible enough to really amplify, you know, your understanding of, of any topic, that's, that is awesome. I'm delighted to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, as I said, you know, the podcast is always fascinating and interesting. It's, I, I have, I am subscribed to something on the order of 80 podcasts, I think at this point, wow. I have a, a, yeah, well, well, we can discuss that another time, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I have a, a small group that are, you know, the ones that you listen to as soon as they come out and yep. yours is on that list. And so, well, thank you. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely a worthwhile one to listen to. And so for everyone who listens to this, if you have time twice a month to go for, you know, somewhere between 90 minutes and two hours to go really deep on a subject and you can do that without dumping this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> do not dump, do not dump this podcast. I agree. Um, yeah, you should go check it out again. It's, it's called the after on podcast and, and people can find that wherever they look at, yeah after dash on.com is the website um i'm uh rob underscore read on twitter and uh yeah those are the those are the ways to find it and just type after on into your favorite podcast player and you'll find it 
Yep. Uh, usually something called After Buzz TV comes up immediately. Oh, really? Just the way, you know, at least in Apple, because, you know, it's just it's it's one word. You type in after, and oh. then it's, a, it's, it's rammed together. So even after space, after... And so I was under the impression that this was some giant thing, because whenever I'm typing <laughs> in my own, it's like, oh, of course, After Buzz TV, everybody listens to that. And then finally one day I clicked through, and it's like, wait, 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 there's like four episodes. It's, not, it's just, I got this, because I got so many brand impressions in my brain. It's just... I got this because I got so many brand impressions in my brain. Now you just need to pick your uh, next podcast name a little bit more carefully, Mister Reed, so you can be the autocomplete solution right. for somebody typing a few characters. Like, it goes back to and and this is you know revealing how old we are, but but the the old days of the phone book where all the plumbers are AAA or oh, yeah. AAA plumbers, so they could be the first one. Yeah, <laughs> Apple have... Aardvark, both spelled yeah. with five A's, plumbers. Yeah. So now we're going to see the same thing like that in podcast probably <laughs> all right anyways uh do you have anything any sort of final final thoughts or final messages you want to leave our listeners with no just listen to podcasts that cultivate your brain and listen to them on the fastest speed you can <laughs> uh because i i trained my ear to listen to a lot of things on 3x speed yep um i like to think my heart my podcasts are a little tougher because it is very structured information i don't really listen to stuff that's more structured on, on super fast speed, but it is a podcast and audi- audible books, audio books are an incredible way to recapture time. I mean, yeah. you need to have some downtime when you're recharging, but it's a great way to just inhale information at a time when you might otherwise be bored, like when you're doing the dishes. Yeah. Uh, I live in New York City, so I walk a great deal, and I have a dog, so I walk even more. <laughs> and that recapture time, particularly when you amp it up, you know, with some speed, not the drug, but with <laughs> one and a half X, two X speed, it, it, it really is a blessing to be able to yeah. access fabulous thinking and fabulous information that you otherwise simply wouldn't have time to onboard. So I'm a big believer in the medium and uh, I just, yeah, I hope yeah. everybody listens and I will to say, stuff. I will, I will say, when you listen to, to podcasts at 3X, as I do also, including this podcast, and I will, I will listen to every episode that we do and usually I'll listen to our own episodes at 3x i feel like i sound smarter (laughs) so 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 if you want to feel like this podcast is even smarter than it probably is ramp up the speed it just feels like our brains are clicking a little faster Indeed. Um, but but anyways, yeah, no, I, I've definitely found the same thing with podcasts and the amount of information I'm suddenly able to cram into my brain and, and you know, both doing the same thing, walking the dog or driving to work or just walking around or anything. Um, it's it's it, it's been this sort of amazing way to, to learn and, and, and gain new knowledge. And, and I think it has know, made me a better husband. I, I do a <laughs> lot more. I'm a, I'm a lot more inclined without being nudged to do housework and stuff because it's like, ooh, it's story time. Time. You interesting know, like, i can interesting oh, I, 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 i'll do I the should. dishes that's like it's going to take me 10 minutes but that's 30 minutes of that's right podcast x and i'm right in the middle of this really cool <laughs> audiobook x you know i'm right in the middle of this really cool part oh yeah i'll do the dishes <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting i should try that oh yeah <laughs> all right well uh rob as always it is good to talk to you and likewise uh, Thanks for, for joining the podca- podcast, uh, and uh, hopefully all of our listeners enjoyed it as well. And now you have another interesting podcast to listen to as well. Thank and you so much for having me on, man. Yeah, uh, no problem. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back next week. Someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and think of the cat. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and think of the cat. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt.
don't know. Yeah. Huh. So grab a shovel and dig a 